Pastor John is um, pastor of a not a very large church in a rural town, and he's taken on a young man who's about 10 years his junior who uh, he's trying to mentor and help. Uh, Pastor John and this man who's younger than him by the name of William have um, started writing worship songs together to illustrate the sermons that Pastor John is preaching. So when Pastor John preaches a sermon out of a certain passage, William or Pastor John will write a, a worship song to help the congregation remember that particular sermon that they're doing. So Pastor John is preparing a sermon for a, a, a New Year's Day, actually, service in their church. And he's written a song based on the passage and William, uh, they, they basically write their own stuff, but then they do it in the, in the service. But today's service on this January 1st is, is uh, Pastor John's, and he's written a, a song, a worship song to go with his sermon. William goes to the, the, the service that morning, and that afternoon he's going on a hike through a, a, a local field. Now, one of the things I didn't tell you about William is that he has suffered severe, severe bouts of depression. Um, he's probably bipolar. He has attempted on several occasions already to take his own life. Before he came uh, to be mentored by Pastor John, he has uh, been institutionalized for depression. And he's been doing really well, but on this particular afternoon, this January 1st, he feels the darkness start to come back upon him. And he immediately goes home and writes uh, a poem, uh, a song of worship to the Lord uh, entitled, uh, Light Shining Out of Darkness because the darkness is starting to just envelop him. Here's the unbelievable text that he writes. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a shining face. This poem, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, is one of the great hymns of the church. Now, unfortunately... Um, even though he writes this on the afternoon of January 1st, by sometime that night or the next morning, he tries to take his own life again. Um, he is saved by Pastor John, who comes in. He and Pastor John and his wife uh, come in and rescue William Cooper, uh, who's going to go on and live another 30 years, actually. Um, become one of the greatest poem, poets in English literature. Um, but on this night, the darkness just so overwhelms him. What is doubly remarkable to me is that morning, Pastor John preaches a sermon based on 1 Chronicles 17, verses 16 and 17. 
This passage was the text that Pastor John used that very morning. Then King David, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me thus far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men, O Lord God. David is looking at his own life saying, it's unbelievable that God would choose this shepherd to become king. In my house, you've made proclamations. You've exalted my house, O Lord. It's, it's, it's just incredible that you would choose me. The worship song that Pastor John wrote that morning to illustrate his sermon goes something like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You can see the connection between the hymn and the scripture passage that he's trying to teach, although he's using many other biblical illusions, the blind man who could see in the grace of God. He goes on to say, "'Twas grace that brought my, taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. To me, it is just almost unimaginable that two of the greatest hymns of the church come forth on the same day, January 1st, 1773. Um, that amazing grace was introduced for the first time in the church. He preaches this sermon about how God's grace is unbelievable. William Cooper goes off in the afternoon on this hike, and though God moved greatly in the service, he's still overwhelmed by the darkness. But in the midst of the darkness, he writes this incredible hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, His Wonders to Perform. And that night, he still tries to. The devil still tries to take him, still tries to kill him. I want to talk this morning, and this is kind of unusual. I don't do this. This is very rare. Uh, what I would like to do is talk about the life of John Newton um, for, a, for the remainder of the time we have. Uh, while I was away, again, these are sermons from my time away, so I, I read, listened to this biography by John, Jonathan Aiken called John Newton. Um, and so I want to share with you his life, I'm going to give you a summary of it, and then I want to look at some biblical truths that I believe God showed me personally from his life. And so usually, if you're new to fullness, usually we do expository sermons, uh, where, which means I, I take a scripture passage, I look at the sermon, um, and then, hey, hey, guys on the floor, could you get in a chair? Um, just help me out. I'm, it's a little distracting to me. This is not about you. This is about me. This would be very, very helpful. You're right in my line of sight right here because I want to be as comfortable as, as you are. Thanks, guys. Um, so I want to look at this um, sermon, uh, this biography, so to speak, of, uh, of John Newton so that we can kind of glean some things from his life together. You with me? 
Right. Thanks. Um, John Newton was born uh, into the family of a sea captain. His dad was a very, not wealthy, but was comfortable as a sea captain. His mother was a very godly woman. The problem was that uh, John Newton's mom died when he was six years old. And he had no spiritual influence in his life from there on out. And um, the best way to put it is he was horrible as a child and as a young man. He lived um, a, a life um, in which he drank heavily, fulfilled his sexual desires, um, defied God, blasphemed God, spoke against God. Uh, he, he, there's nothing really redemptive to look at his, his early life. In his teens, his dad, uh, his father, in a hope to help him find a future, took him on his boat and tried to train him to become a seafaring man. But John Newton was so rebellious that even his own dad kicked him off his ship. He got him a job on another ship. And uh, those people kicked him off as well uh, because he... He was rebellious, he defied God, he just was everything you were not looking for in a teenager's life. Now, one of the things about John Newton is he's brilliant. Even though he's horribly rebellious and he uh, blasphemes God, doesn't believe in God, tries to get people away from God, he's still reading um, Virgil in the original language. Uh, he, he's a studious person. He loves to read. I mean, I, evidently there wasn't a lot to do on a ship. Uh, so they would take a, you know, Greek, Latin book on board and read it. By the age of 18, he's been kicked off numerous ships. And he falls in love with a young girl from a family friend. Now, when I tell you the age, you're going to be totally offended because... It, it offends our modern sensibilities. He's 18, and he falls in love with a 13-year-old from a family uh, that is friends with her. Now, he did not profess his love to her when he was 18 and she was 13, but he nonetheless fell in love with her. And um, just spoiler alert, he's eventually going to marry her uh, when they're in their 20s and stay married for almost 50 years. But he fell in love with her early on, and so he would slip away from his duties at other jobs and ships to go visit her. One day, when he's 18, he's on his way back to his uh, job to be on a ship when he is what is called press-ganged uh, into military service. Now, in the 1700s, talk about to be offended before, wait till you hear this. He's walking along, just minding his own business, and because war was about to break out between uh, Great Britain and France, which it seemed to always do uh, during these times, um, they've ordered that the Royal Navy can draft, so to speak, young men off the streets. So basically, you're walking along the street, a group of soldiers finds you, captures you, and now you're in the military. That's what happened to John Newton. He's walking along, and his dad tried to get him out of it. His father tried to get him out. But just think of this. You've got an 18-year-old healthy guy who knows how to be a, a seaman. 
He knows how to be uh, on the, the, the boats. And so they're like, oh, we got us a good one. And so they kept him. They took him on a military ship. Now, here's the thing about John Newton. He was so bad, they didn't want him. So while they're at sea, while they're at sea, they would at times trade sailors with other ships. So they came across a slave trading vessel, and the captain of this military... I mean, John Newton has already tried to... He's already um, um, escaped the military one time. They had to go get him. He was publicly flogged um, because of his desertion. Now, they're on the ship. The captain's trying to get rid of him. They come across a slave trading ship. John Newton is traded for someone off the slave ship who then comes in his place on the military ship. So now he's on a slave ship. He is so bad on this slave ship, and he even says about himself this, I was exceedingly vile. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. So not only was he bad, but he was trying to evangelize others, so to speak. He was trying to get others to blaspheme God. He was trying to get others to join in his stuff. He was so offensive that even the sailors on his ship were offended by the oaths and the things he did. In an early kind of precursor to his uh, ability to write poems and songs, he wrote a song that... Um, made fun of the captain of the ship and was really horrible, evidently. And not only did he write it, he taught all the other sailors on the ship the song. So by the time they get to the west coast of Africa, uh, the captain is ready to get rid of him. And so he unloads John Newton into um, a slave trader's camp uh, in Sierra Leone. There in Sierra Leone, and he barely escaped with his life off the ship. So he gets off the ship. He's now working for a slave trader in West Africa in Sierra Leone. And he runs a... Fa he, if you read the biography, he is involved in every sort of sin. Every sort of um, sexual sin, uh, witchcraft. He, he, is, he is gone. But he says the only thing that I didn't do is a thing I got accused of and arrested for, which was stealing. So he wants people to know I, he had a moral standard. Uh, and it was, I'm not going to steal. And he is in prison, basically taken as a slave by the, by the slave trader and uh, his mistress. And he's enchained for almost two years, enslaved. He, he's able to slip a couple of letters away to his father back in England that are smuggled to tell his father of his circumstance and his situation. His father, who is, of course, as I said, a sea captain, sends another friend who's headed down that way and says, if you're in that area, see if you can't find my wayward son and help rescue him, which he does miraculously, this guy just, and the account of it is, is almost unbelievable, how he finds John Newton, how he rescues him and takes him aboard 
uh, his ship, a ship called the Greyhound. The Greyhound was not a slave trading ship. It actually traded in other goods, but most of the West African ships that were coming out of Great Britain were, were involved in, in the African slave trade. Um, Great Britain had at that time the, the British West Indies, which were totally um, manned by slaves. Um, they had British overlords, but it was really the slaves that did all the work. Some of the slaves would then be transferred to the Americas. Um, so the slave trade was very profitable, profitable back in the 1700s. But the Greyhound that he's on was not actually a slave ship. I'll come back to the slave trade here in, in, before too long. So John Newton is now on this Greyhound ship, not a bus, the Greyhound and he's just totally bored. And again, he's causing trouble already. The guy who rescues him is, is sad that he rescued him. You know, he wishes he had not gotten him uh, out of this because he's causing trouble on the ship. By now, he's uh, mid-20s and still as rebellious as ever. He is totally bored on this ship. And so the only book he can find on the ship is a book by Thomas Kempis, the famous book, The Imitation of Christ. By the way, one of the things Newton did when he was enslaved, just to show you how his mind was, was brilliant even back then, he did Euclid geometry with a stick on the ground to kind of pass the time. Anybody <coughs> engaged in that kind of fun? You know, just going to pass the time. I think I'll do some Euclidean geometry here. Uh, I can't even remember what that is other than triangles and stuff. So anyway, he did that. He also planted some lime trees, and he swore under his breath as a slave, a white slave in an African trading post, manned by mainly Africans. He swears that if he ever comes back, he's going to pick a lime from this tree he's planted. On the ship, the Greyhound, he picks up the imitation of Christ. He starts reading it, and he is suddenly overwhelmed if, with this thought, oh my, what if this is true? What if this is accurate? And he doesn't really give much thought to it, but he is kind of uh, engaged in it. And then a terrible storm. They're headed back from Africa to England. A terrible storm hits the ship, and it is about to sink. One of those storms that's going to take the, the, the ship out. And Newton cries out this. He says, Lord, have mercy on us. Now, in reflecting on this cry, he says about himself, I was instantly struck by my own words. This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. Which is remarkable when you think about what he's gone through already. I mean, this guy is so bad that even sailors are offended by the way he talks. Uh, he's been in horrible situations, enslaved, in prison, passed from ship to ship. He's never cried out for mercy till this moment where he really thought he was going to die. He says this. About this time, I began to know that there is a God who answers prayer. To me, this is just a remarkable story of a guy who gets touched by God, who wasn't looking for God, who is defying God in every single thing he did, and yet God reached out and touched him in the middle of it. 
Newton calls this day his great turning day. Um, he's not willing to say, I came to faith in Jesus and I was totally transformed. But basically what he says was, here I turned and began my journey. And it's going to be years of a journey toward the light for John Newton. He goes back to England. He marries Polly, or he wants to marry Polly, but he doesn't have really any kind of um, job, so to speak. So he goes to work on slave trading vessels. Now, what's happened in John Newton's life at this moment is he, he said from his great turning day forward, he didn't swear, he didn't drink, um, he didn't blaspheme God. He, there are certain behaviors that he saw as immoral that he turned away from, but one of them was not being engaged in the slave trade. So he goes to work on a slave ship, eventually captaining three, at least three slave journeys from England to Africa to the West Indies. Now, along the way, Newton does something remarkable. He takes, actually takes care of his cargo, so to speak. I hate to use that word. Please forgive me. But the slaves that he took, remarkably, on the final journey, no, not one slave or crew member died, which was incredible because generally a third to one half of um, the people who had been enslaved died on the journey, what was called the Mid-Atlantic Passage. And on Newton's last journey, no one died. Now, in 1950, uh, excuse me, 1758, Newton leaves the slave trade. And he didn't leave because he had a moral conscience against it or because he found it offensive. He left for his own health. And when he leaves, he becomes what's called surveyor of the tides in Liverpool. Some of these words, I had to look up and find out what we're talking about. Surveyor of the tides is basically the custom official in Liverpool, a shipping, slave trading city. He became the main guy. And it was a very lucrative position, and it was a position that gave him a lot of time. By now, he's married to Polly, and they're living in Liverpool in a very comfortable existence. And he's there for about four years and during this four years is when God really moves in his life. He finds somebody who mentors him, a local pastor. He, he comes, now this is incredible for the time, he comes into the ministry of George Whitfield and John Wesley, who both visit Liverpool, who he then meets with Whitfield on a number of occasions. And it really changes the whole message of grace the whole message of the move of God really happens in Newton's life during his time in Liverpool. So he's moved from being this totally vile young man. He's now in his upper 20s. And at the age of 29, he determines that he wants to become a minister. He wants to become a, he wants to become a pastor. So now... By now, he's in his mid-30s. He studies for like four years. He reads. He talks to people. Uh, he said that from this point on, his goal was to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, that I may declare his unsearchable riches to sinners, to insist much upon the great essential points of the glories of his person and offices, 
his wonderful love and, uh, excuse me, I can't say condescension, his power, faithfulness, and ready to save, the grandeur of his works, the perfection of his example, his life, passion, death, and resurrection. He's become very wordy by now, as well as very passionate about the things of the Lord. Newton is 33 when he makes these great declarations and totally tries to become pastor of a church. Now, Newton wants to become, he wants to be a pastor or a rector in the Church of England. But the Church of England doesn't want him. Uh, He is accused of the horrible crime of enthusiasm. Uh, Enthusiasm was a code word for Methodism. Because of his relationship to Whitfield and Wesley um, and the, the way Methodism was struggling against the Church of England at the time, you know, Wesley and Whitfield were originally part of the Church of England, but they wanted the, the whole thing to stay, but it, kind of a reformation, almost like Martin Luther, who didn't want to leave Catholicism, actually, wanted to reform, not leave, but was basically removed. Same thing happens, but... but Newton wants to stay in the Church of England, but they won't have him. It it launches him on a six-year journey where he won't become a pastor of a Methodist church. He wants to become a rector or pastor of a Church of England. Remarkably, after six years, uh, at the age of 40 almost, he finally becomes pastor of a small village church in Olney, England, O-L-N-E-Y, Olney, England. It's a, it, it was a, a church that was overseen by uh, Lord Dartmouth, uh, and Lord Dartmouth uh, came to know John Newton and wanted him to come pastor the church and convinces the bishop in the area to install him and ordain him and let him become pastor. The church immediately grows. It triples in size. John Newton is a great pastor. He's, he, he ministers to children. He goes out in the community. He's known as a great communicator. People as far away from as London are coming to, to see him and hear him preach. Uh, um, among those is uh, the family that uh, moved William Cooper uh, to be there. Also, uh, the Wilberforce family, who I'll talk about more in a minute. Young William Wilberforce was around 12 or 13 when he first came to hear John Newton preach in Olney, England. Uh, he becomes very, very well known. Not only that, but at this time, he also publishes an autobiography um, talking about his conversion. And it becomes a classic in conversion literature, meaning it's one of the first books that really talks about how God moves in people's lives. And it talks about the slave trade. It talks about his terrible life before and how God has moved. He, John Newman becomes incredibly famous from this book. This is not only a national bestseller in England at the time, but it becomes an international bestseller. He becomes very, very well known as a result of this autobiography in which he talks about this vile slave trader who blasphemed God now being a recipient of the grace of God. John Newton ministers in Olney for about 14 years. Uh, he's, he, great things happen, puts out a hymnal uh, called the Olney Hymnal. 
Kind of catchy, isn't it? Uh, the only hymnal, which becomes uh, an incredible, another bestseller, both in England and the Americas. It changes hymnody, um, and, and we'll get to this in a minute. Y'all just hang on. This is this story's not near done. Um, <laughs> it becomes a classic in hymnology. You, we, we study it in music school. Now, remember, hymns are not the music. I'm going to say this over and over again. When you say a hymn, you're talking about the poetry, the words, the language, not, not the music. Uh, the hymn tune is a totally different thing. So Newton and Cooper correspond together writing these hymns, and they put out this hymn book in uh, 1779 called the Olney Hymn Book, which becomes another bestseller. Now, during this time, some things happen. The church is going great, but um, some things happen in the town and with John Newton that makes it where he has to leave Olney. Uh, one of the things, um, this is a warning to all pastors everywhere at all times, he becomes involved in politics. Uh, as a matter of fact, he becomes a, a defender of the colonies. Uh, hello? Remember, 1776, people, um, the whole Declaration of Independence thing, the war, the rebellion. It wasn't a very popular position, as you can imagine, in Olney, England, um, to, for him to say, you know what, they do need representation, and they've got a They've got a beef here. Well, that did not sit well with the country folk in Olney. And so eventually he is appointed in 1780 to St. Mary Walnoth in London's financial district. And this is the church he will serve as pastor for the rest of his life. In this place, he really has an influence on many particular leaders, we'll talk about this in a minute, and mission areas and just great things in the life of the church. I would say the high point for me for Newton's life happens in this pastorate. William Wilberforce is a young politician who has become famous in England. He and his friend William Pitt and uh, uh, another William, have, the three of them came into politics and became members of parliament, all three of them at the age of 21. William Pitt, uh, Wilberforce's best friend, becomes prime minister at the age of 24. Um, they talk about this youth movement that happened in Parliament in this period of time and the power that these guys were influencing. And they, they meet under a tree and they make this covenant together. We're going to change the way Great Britain operates and the lives of the people that are under our care. Wilberforce is not a believer. And in his late 20s, he goes on a journey to Spain with another friend and comes to know God, comes to know Jesus. But all he knows about God is the legalistic aspects of God. He, he looks back at his life. He's, this most, he's probably the most famous politician in Great Britain at the time. His oratory skills are, are known across the country. Um, 
he, he's a very slight man, but he's very articulate, and his voice was supposed to be angelic, people say. And so he's well known, but he, he knows, he like, he, like Newton, looks back at his life and says, I'm, I've lived a horrible life. I'm going to have to work really hard for God in the days ahead. He knew nothing of the grace of God. He knew nothing of the mercy of God. All he knows is, I've been horrible. God is going to judge me. Jesus died for me. But now, I, I, he was wrought with guilt. He comes to visit uh, John Newton late at night. It's, very, it's re actually a very late meeting because it's kind of clandestine. Because he's afraid that people will see him coming to see John Newton. And John Newton is very famous. And they'll be like, oh, Wilberforce has lost it. So he comes to see John Newton late at night and says, I've come to this. And I, I, I'm going to leave politics and I'm going to go into the ministry. And what I think is one of the turning points in British history, John Newton says to him, no, don't leave politics. Don't go, don't do that. God has placed you right where he wants you for a different purpose. He's given you favor in this area, and you need to stay there. Now, think about this. If one of the most famous speakers in our country came to a pastor and said, hey, I want to go into the ministry, most of the time we'd be like, yeah, you know, yeah, come on in. We need you. But Newton had the foresight to look at this young man, almost 30, and say, no, stay where, this is where God wants you. Now, by this time, Newton is um, 60 years old, maybe a little older, but Wilberforce comes to realize within the next year or two that he says this, God Almighty has placed before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And I don't mean that the fort goes on the left kind of manners. I mean the kind of manners. I thought that was funny, people. Are you also with me? Um, but rather the morals of the, the, morals of the country. And he's, he's mentored with Newton, who's talked to him about the slave trade, and they become partners in the elimination of the slave trade in Great Britain. Now, you might say, why just the slave trade and not slavery uh, as a port? Because they realized that was their goal, the elimination of slavery in Great Britain, but they knew it was a bridge too far that they first needed to cut off the trade routes of slavery, and the, they, they felt like they could sell to the country the horrible circumstances and situations in which um, people were being traded, sold, their lives were being lost, with the goal of eventually eliminating the slave trade. Now, again, spoiler, it's going to take 20 years for this to be accomplished. Um, as a matter of fact, it, the, the slave trade was eliminated in 1807 in Great Britain, just months before John Newton passes away. Wilberforce is able to send a letter to Newton and go see him before he dies to tell him that the slave trade has been eliminated. It's another 20 years after that before slavery in Great Britain is going to be eliminated. And all of it, all of it really falls at the footsteps of William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce is only where he's supposed to be because of the wisdom of a senior pastor named John Newton. 
John Newton dies in 1807. He's buried in Olney, England. And though there's much more I could talk about in his life, time won't permit me to. So I'm going to say this. Here's what it says on his tombstone in Olney. It says, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine. And by the way, this is not other people describing him. This is how he described himself. An infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. I don't know what you want written on your tombstone, but that's not bad. Now, I'm going to quickly move through this. I'm going to try. Hopefully, I haven't lost you in my excitement about telling stories and biography. But here's what I want to do. I want to give you real quickly. You're going to panic when I say how many I'm going to give you. Um, I want to give you six truths, six biblical truths from the life of John Newton. And I'm just going to give them to you. I'm going to comment on them, and then we'll move along. The first thing is this. No one is beyond the saving grace of God. No one. If you... You know, we know John Newton because he wrote Amazing Grace, right? That's most of our, if we know him at all, that's the limit to which we know him. But when you look at his early life up until his late 20s, you would say, this guy, if there is a guy beyond the reach of God, everything about what he did, and I'm only giving you a part of it, seems like he's beyond the reach of God. Look around at the people around you and just think of the one person right now that you would say, that person is beyond the reach of God. And I would say to you, no, they're not. No, they're not. Instead, pray that the grace of God would reach out. In Newton's life, it took a storm. It took a, I mean, the odds of him reading the imitation of Christ at that moment, if you want to go with odds, are out of astronomical. But God placed things in his path at perfect moments so that he would come to the end of his natural rope and only the grace of God could meet him there. The Bible is full of examples. Paul saw himself as what? Chief among sinners. He's like, I'm the worst. I was the worst. Why? Because he persecuted the church. He killed other Christians. He, he never really got over the fact that he killed brothers and sisters in Christ before he came to know the Lord. Paul was someone you would say he was beyond the reach of Christ, but God met him on the road to Damascus. God met John Newton on the ship, the Greyhound. No one is beyond the grace of God. It's biblical, people. Somebody should say amen. amen. Thanks. <laughs> if, if I have to ask you for an amen, I don't, I don't know if it counts. Con this is biblical too. Conversion is an event followed by a process. Um, John Newton didn't just go from being horrible to godly. It was a process that came about in his life. In the biblical sense, we call this sanctification. It's the process of being made holy. And by the way, no matter how far you've come by grace thus far it's still grace going to lead you home. You still got more grace that's needed in your life. I, 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 over my lifetime, have seen, I thought I had killed the flesh until I got married. Some of you think that's funny. Some, what? I, I realize there's still a lot of flesh 
to deal with after I got married, so to speak. I was more self-centered than I thought. And then I thought I'd taken care of the flesh, and then I had children, one after the other after the other, and I realized the flesh just, just keep coming up in me. Some of you aren't parents yet, um, or just got married, but um, you'll realize that conversion, you come to know Christ, but the holiness, the living for God, is a process in your life. Here's the third point, and this one's really good. The journey cannot be made alone. It cannot. Newton's life is a time after time of God placing a godly person in his life. By the way, the Bible calls this disciple-making, discipleship, helping others, mentoring others, speaking of God in our lives. I say this over and over. If you're new to fullness, Christianity is not about just you and God. Hello? Christianity is about you and me and God. It is, it is the relationship vertically and the relationship horizontally. You aren't saved so that you individually become the body of Christ. You are saved into the body of Christ, which is the church. It is us together. We need each other. we got to have each other. The journey cannot be made alone. If you try to make this journey alone, I'll predict right out. I'm not prophetic, but I'll predict that you will either be stunted in your growth or you'll be picked off. It is not God's plan for you to go on this journey alone. It's for us to do it together. And time after time, we see in Newton's life, people from a ship captain to don't we all wish we could have George Whitfield or John Wesley help mentor us, but I'm sorry, you got me and you got our elders. We're the best you got right now. So let's just struggle forward, struggle forward together. Fourth point is this, God's timing is different than ours. Time after time, you see in Newton's life a waiting. I mean, he, he, he's steady, he's ready, he's going to become a pastor. Six years he has to wait before he's given an opportunity to become a pastor. And he's offered all these other opportunities, but he's got the vision that's clear in his heart and his mind that God has given him, and he waits on the Lord. Listen, God, this, people, this is really important. God may give you a word about something he wants to do in your life. And if you're like me, you want it yesterday. Today at the latest, tomorrow is way too late. But to wait six years to see the fruition of a promise of God fulfilled in your life, and the truth that it tells me, and that if you look throughout Newton's life, and I'm just giving you one example, is God's timing is not the same as ours. Those that wait upon the Lord will be renewed, will be filled, will find their destiny in, in him. For some of us, it may be six years. For some of us, it may be 20. Some of us, it may be 30. God's timing is different than ours. Also, here's a fifth truth that I want you to see. Um, that, and again, these were for me personally. I wrote these down as my truths. I'm just sharing them with you, hoping that in some way they'll bless you. And some way they'll speak into your life. Uh, remember, these sermons from sabbatical are, are more like sermons. They're, they're truths that God has showed me about me, and I'm trying to share them just a little bit with you. Is this. Develop kingdom influence in many different spheres. For me, I started looking at my life thinking, 
you know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm becoming more and more insulated. And I want to become more and more out there. I want, to, I want more spheres of influence. You've got a sphere of influence. And I want to help pastor you to help you disciple, harvest the sphere of influence that God has given you. So if I help you, then it will make a difference out there in some way. Am, am I making sense at all? Let me just give you a couple. This is, this is uh, just a couple from his life. William Cooper. Um, in poetry and literature, again, we, we don't know William Cooper's name as much, but Samuel Coolridge, uh, William Wordsworth, they, they all say the greatest poet in English literature at their time was William Cooper. He writes a number of poems that become very, very famous. William Wilberforce, as we've already talked about in politics and social concern. Sir James Stevens re helps reform the Anglican Church at the time. William Carey was appointed to missions as a result of the ministry of John Newton. I mean, person after person after person, you see how he influenced that particular sphere in remarkable ways. And then the final point is this, and here's where I'm going to close. God's grace in your life, this is even mind-blowing to me, and I'm trying to get my heart around it as I get a little older. God's grace in your life is not limited by your time on earth. I mean, think about it. What are you aiming for right now? Oh, I want to make an influence. I want to do the best with my time on earth. No, aim for bigger than that. Aim, aim that. Your influence in the world will so far surpass your lifetime. It goes beyond you. It's not just about your children, if you're thinking that. It could be. But there are other ways that your life could impact the world around you. The seeds that you're planting now may come into harvest years after you're dead. But you got to plant them nonetheless. John Newton had the privilege of going back to Africa when he was involved in the slave trade, but he got limes off those trees he planted when he was a prisoner and a slave. Let me just tell you the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. 1799, the Olney Hymnal was published, and in it was hymn number 41 called Faith's Review and Expectation. Not a very catchy title uh, to me. And... Um, it was the original title given to Amazing Grace. Faith's Review and Expectation. It was hymn number 41. And you can see it's just the text that's published in these hymn books. Because again, the hymn is the poetry or the text. It's not the music. We don't even know what tune it was originally sung to. It was probably sung to some English air or bar tune or whatever. Something the people knew. They would put the words to that tune. So we don't even know. During his lifetime, the only hymnal becomes very famous, but it is not because of amazing grace. It's more because of um, God moves in mysterious ways. There is a fountain filled with blood, which is what Cooper wrote as well, um, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I mean, other hymns became very popular, but not this one. It was never famous dinner, during Newton's lifetime. Some 30 years after Newton dies, a man by the name of William Walker 
goes around. He, this is the United States. He goes around in the South. He's from South Carolina. He goes around in the South and he collects songs that are called plantation songs, spirituals uh, by black folk that he writes down and he just transcribes them. He's a musician and William Walker puts the words to Amazing Grace with the tune of Amazing Grace that we know today. Some 30 years after Newton dies, it starts to gain some popularity. Now, you and I, we can't even think of Amazing Grace without the tune, right? But Walker put this tune, who we don't know wrote, probably from some plantation that he transcribed and first published in this book called Southern Harmony. In 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes Uncle Tom's Cabin, the famous um, abolition of slavery book. And in Uncle Tom's Cabin, after Tom is beaten and lying on his bed, he starts singing Amazing Grace. And she publishes the words. And she adds a last verse, which is taken from another spiritual, which is this, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Those aren't even Newton's words. We don't even know whose words those are. But Harriet Beecher Stowe has enough literary sense, and it probably had been sung, and she heard it in some way, but she puts it in the words, and that, those words become wedded to this song as, as well. Over the next hundred years, Amazing Grace becomes the most popular by far of any hymn in the English language. I mean, the, the different accounts of it, the different ways it's been sold, it's become popular. And, and here's, here's one of the things I want you to see. Here's how good God is and how remarkable this truth, I think, applies. That God's grace in your lifetime is not limited by your time on earth. Newton's words are wedded to black African slaves' tunes. It, it, it's possible, probably not probable, that some of the slaves are descendants of the slaves he transported when he was still a slave captain could have been involved in... There's a connection between this former slave trader who experiences the grace of God that his name is known really to us because of Tunes written by the descendants of slaves and by slaves themselves and as a part of an abolition book. Now, he would have celebrated because it became one of his life's missions to see the slave trade eliminated, that all of this came together in the grace of God. Newton says about himself, I am a great sinner but Christ is a great Savior. This morning, what I would like for you to see are these biblical truths, and I pray that they become a part of your life. 
that no one is beyond the saving grace of God, that you are in a process of being made right, being made holy. You're right with God, but you're in the process of holiness. The journey cannot be made alone. You have to have others around you to help engage in that process. God's timing is not your timing. Hang in there. Stay faithful. Develop kingdom influences in all these different spheres of your life. And like God's grace in your life is not limited to your lifetime. If you plant the right seeds now, you will reap a harvest of righteousness in due time. And due time may be long after you're gone from this earth. Plant anyway. Stand up with me. Lord, we thank you and bless you and praise you. We glory in your name. I thank you for the life of John Newton, and I thank you for the example that a godly life will show us and encourage us and spur us on. Lord, we, we thank you for the biblical truths that the life of John Newton shows us. Lord, as we sing this great hymn of faith before we leave. I pray that, God, you would help us to understand how you are at work today in our lives individually and us corporately. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we were once blind, but we can see because of you. Help us to see, open the eyes of our heart in order that we may know the hope to which we have been called, the glorious inheritance of the saints, and your incomparably great power for those of us who believed. Church, just together before we leave, I, I know I've gone a little longer today, but just as, as we close, just let the, the words of this great hymn, the freedom of the Lord, the hope for the future, the fact that a slave trader got saved and some slaves wrote a tune in which we can all declare the glory of God together. Let's worship. Amazing grace, how sweet the sun. That save a Blah.